All right, let's get started. Um, there's a section that I want to finish today before we leave from you. Uh, we've been working through this outline, Revelation 10 and 11, for a while. So if you still have it, we're on the back. The theme, this parenthesis in the book, is God's testimony, even in the midst of dark times. And even last night, here at Oktoberfest, as dark as it is, and as apathetic as society has become, God still maintains a testimony. And uh, that's what He's faithful to do. There will always be a light of God's truth burning somewhere until the end. Even if it's small, God always has a remnant. So we can rejoice in that and in being a part of that. Um, so turn to Revelation chapter 11. Um, I'll be gone from you for several weeks following today. I believe Bob's going to be teaching. So you guys will get a little bit of a break. But let's try to get through verse 14 today. And that ends this parenthesis and then we resume the chronology uh, uh, of the book as things happen in their chronological order. Last time, we were talking about the ministry of these two special street preachers. Somebody told us last night, came up and said, how many people get converted to Christianity through this method you're using? That was his question. And my answer was, Many are called, few are chosen. He, that was my answer to the question, but he, did, he didn't understand that that's the answer. He wanted an answer. I said, that's the answer, friend. Many are called, few are chosen. And then he went into some diatribe about how what we were doing wasn't effective. And I said, we're not trying to be effective. We're trying to be obedient. Okay? God uses two street preachers to bear testimony in Jerusalem during this time of Tribulation. So I don't care what the American church says about whether or not open-air preaching is effective. I don't care. I know it's a God-ordained method, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I know when God has uh, all different manifestations of His testimony that He could use in the last days, He chooses two men that mirror the ministry of His Son. One of preaching in the streets one of open-air ministry, one of boldness. And so by virtue of God's testimony in His Word, we can rest assured that the time we spent last night was effective. We want to be effective in what God says is effective. Or effective according to God, not according to man. I can't stand that word effective. It's become sort of a uh, cliche for the American church. And uh, it's... Vomit-inducing. But we talked about the ministry of these two witnesses last week and how God sanctions their supernatural ability to defend themselves uh, so that their ministry can continue. And we talked about what this has to say about pacifism. Does, does Jesus teach that we as Christians should be pacifist? That we should just sit there and allow people to do whatever they're going to do to harm our brothers and sisters in Christ or to harm our families and do nothing. And we looked at the Sermon on the Mount and came to the conclusion that that's not what he's teaching at all. Okay, last night there was a man came up and was taunting a little bit and he got in my face and said, if I punch you in the mouth, are you going to turn the other cheek? And I said, well, if you slap me to insult my pride, yeah, I'll turn the other cheek. But if you intend to do violence, uh, you're going to get it right back. And so that kind of silenced the conversation and he didn't know what to say. But um, we, we, we looked at that last week and then we looked at 
Verse 6, the character of their ministry, the types of things these men would be allowed or empowered to do, and we saw how these things mirrored the miracles and the signs of Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. We know that these two witnesses, we know who they are based on Zechariah chapter 4. We looked at that vision for a while. And I made the claim that these two witnesses are none other, I believe, than last day's manifestations of the prophet Moses and the prophet Elijah. Um, And I believe there is no other reasonable conclusion. This makes sense based on the testimony of God's Word. So let's just, uh, I told you I would explain that to you today. Let's look up a couple of passages. Let's go back and look at Moses and Elijah. There was something unique about each of their earthly departures. They weren't regular in terms of how they departed this world. So, Eric, if you'll look up 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And Daniel, if you'll look up Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 8. So, I've made the claim that these witnesses are Moses and Elijah allowed to return to fulfill God's will. And so let's look at their earthly departures. There's something unique about each of these men that leads us to believe God was reserving them for a future purpose in this life. Second Kings. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together in smoke waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee, before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and part of them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes, and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah, and fell from him, and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. So Elisha and Elijah went over the river, and Elijah was taken from his student in a world, by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah did not die. He was translated very visibly, not a secret rapture like what will happen with the church, but a visible ascension into heaven. He didn't die. As if God had some special purpose for him. It's interesting because Elisha, you can go back and study this, asked that his teacher would bless him with a double portion before he left. And if you go and study the ministry of Elisha, Elisha... Uh, was used by God, obviously a prophet of God in Israel. And Elisha's miracles were double numerically of what Elijah did. So that request was answered. So a supernatural departure, a rapture, a visible rapture that was beheld um, by his student, Elisha. Deuteronomy 34, 1 through 8 Moses went up from the plains of Moab 
to the mountain of Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, that is over against Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah unto the utmost sea, and the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees unto Zoar. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed, I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulchre unto this day. And Moses was an hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. So the days of the weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. So Moses did die. But his death was strange because the people of Israel did not bury him. It says that God buried him. And that no man knew where his grave or his burying place was. Even to this day, no one knows where Moses is buried. He was allowed to look over the land, and at that time, God would not allow him to cross therein. I believe um, uh, Mount Nebo is in the present-day country of Jordan. But Moses died and was buried by God. So when people die, God doesn't bury them. People bury them. But in this case, God obviously had a reason for doing that, and it was done perhaps because there was some other purpose God had for the body of Moses. Now, if you turn to the book of Jude, right before Revelation in the New Testament, we see that there was or there is a purpose or a plan for the body of Moses such that Satan got involved. Now, I don't understand what all this means, but I do trust that when the Scriptures reveal something, it's true. I don't know how, need to know why. But in verse 9 of Jude, it says, Yet Michael the archangel, this is in the context of Jude warning us that we shouldn't be hasty to speak evil, even of powers and principalities. You know, I think of, uh, of a lot of charismatic type Christians that want to find a demon under every rock and they want to just spout off at the mouth at the devil, I rebuke you, Satan, and all this kind of big talk. And Jude warned Christians about speaking hastily or evil of even powers and principalities. And in the context of that warning, he said, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. So there was a contention or a debate between Michael and the devil about the body of Moses. Why? Obviously, there's, God has a purpose for it. And the devil was trying to get in the way of that. And there was a dispute. And then it goes on to say that Michael, the archangel, as powerful as he was, didn't even bring a railing accusation against the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Yeah, that's the best rebuke there is to Satan, not I rebuke you. You don't have the power to stop him. But the Lord rebuke you. When the Bible says, resist the devil and he shall flee from you, what does that look like? The Lord rebuke you, Satan, and he'll flee. He will flee. But obviously there is a 
something unique about Moses' death as well, as far as his body is concerned. God has a plan or a purpose for it. That's why he was God buried him. And that's why Michael and the devil were arguing about what would happen with the body of Moses. Okay, so there's something unique about their earthly departures. No question. The Bible also testifies very clearly in the Old Testament that Elijah the prophet will come again. It says that he will come again. Let's look at a few passages of Scripture. Jason, if you'll look up Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Uh, Ronnie, Matthew eleven thirteen through 15. Jim, John 1, 20 and 21. Eric, Mark 9, 12 through 13. And Graham, I'll let you read Luke 1, 17. Okay, go ahead when you have those Malachi passages. So the Bible prophesies that there would be a forerunner of Christ. We know that this happened with John the Baptist, and these passages are quoted there in the New Testament. John was a type of a forerunner for Christ's first coming. But Old Testament types have antitypes, and the prophecy is not fulfilled until the antitype comes. And so prior to Christ's second coming, there will be a forerunner. Okay, we know this. It says here, I will send my messenger. And he shall prepare the way before me. Now go to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we know Malachi 3 has a double fulfillment. The first one is with John the Baptist, as the New Testament gives testimony. But we know there's an antitype or, or a ultimate fulfillment in the great and dreadful day of the Lord. When Christ came and was born as a baby in a manger, that wasn't the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's the day of judgment. And here it says that God will send Elijah the prophet to who? Whom, to whom is Malachi writing? To the Jews. I will send you, Elijah the prophet, to bear testimony, to preach to you. So that's what the scriptures say in the, in, in the prophets. Matthew eleven thirteen through 15. For all the prophets of the law prophesied unto John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was far to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. John was a shadow fulfillment, or a type of Elijah that was come. That's why Jesus said, for you that will receive it, for you that understand, this is... Elias, who was prophesied to come. Okay? But, look at John 1, 20 and 21. And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. So they asked John, Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet that would come? And he said, No. So John denied that he was Elijah the prophet. 
Jesus said, if you will receive it, he is Elias. He's a type. Just like Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel, a type of Antichrist. Just like the birth of Isaiah's child uh, in Isaiah chapter 8, a type of Emmanuel that would come. And then Mark 9, 12, and 13. Jesus was talking about the last days and His coming and the scribes and the Pharisees and the people there asked Him, why, does, why do the prophets say that Elijah must come first? Of course, that's what's written there in Malachi. Why do the scribes say this? And Jesus said, Elijah will come. He will come and restore all things. And then He goes on to say, but I say He is indeed come. So right here in this passage, we have both the near and the far horizons. We have both the type and the anti-type. Jesus doesn't deny that Elijah will come ultimately before the day of the Lord, but John was there in the spirit and power of Elias. And they didn't understand that because they didn't understand that Jesus, their Messiah, had to come first as a suffering servant before He came as a conquering king. And in Luke 1.17... It says here in the prophecy about John the Baptist that John would go in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not that he was Elijah, but he would go in the spirit and power. Okay? So John is the type of that messenger. Elijah is the anti-type. It's interesting when the Jews observe their Passover Seder. Okay? They always place an empty chair there in the room. And that empty chair is there for who? Who is that placed for? Anybody know? It's for Elijah. They leave an empty chair for Elijah, hoping that this Passover is when he comes, like the Bible says in the last days. So the Jews understand that Elijah will come. So we know he must come before the coming of Christ. John came in his spirit and power and was a shadow fulfillment. Elijah is the ultimate fulfillment. Bible doesn't say anything like that regarding Moses. All we know about Moses is that he was buried by God and there was a dispute about his body. However, some interesting things happened during Jesus' ministry that linked these two men together. So let's look at a couple of other passages. We're doing Bible drill this morning. I would ask James to read, but it'll be in Bengali. I could translate for you. <laughs> Uh, Daniel, Matthew 17, 1 through 3. Uh, Ronnie, Luke 24, 4 through 7. And Jason, Acts 1, 10 and 11. Matthew 17, 1 through 3. 
And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. Okay, so Jesus took his disciples up on a high mountain, Mount Hermon, which is a snow-capped peak, uh, on the border of Israel and Syria, a high mountain. It was a slog. Okay, it wasn't a little hill that you could run up in about an hour, Mount Tabor. Ricky and I ran up that in an hour. That's the traditional site, but it's not a very high mountain. Nonetheless, Jesus was transfigured before them. Jesus revealed to them His glory. Just prior to that, He had said to the crowd, there are some standing here that will not die until they see Christ coming in His glory. And then six days later, Peter and James and John were taken to the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus in His glory that would, would be at His second coming. And who was standing there talking with Jesus in His glory? Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't know how the apostles recognized them. There was no cameras back then. There was no uh, uh, depictions of these men or what they looked like. Obviously, it was revealed to them by the Spirit of God. But Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus as He appeared in the glory with which He will return to earth. And so Moses and Elijah both associated with Christ in that event and His second coming. Two witnesses right there with James and John and uh, uh, Peter. Luke 24, 4-7. through seven. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So at Jesus' resurrection, um, These were some of the uh, women that came uh, uh, bringing spices. Wait a minute, I've just lost my place. Yes, some of the women bringing spices came to the tomb and they were greeted, it says, by two men in shining, shining garments. Not angels, two men. Shining garments. Shining garments, I think of white raiment. What is the white raiment that we see on the saints in heaven? The righteousness of the saints. So we have two men that are bearing witness of His resurrection. We had two men, Moses and Elijah, standing with Him, bearing testimony of His glory that will, that will accompany Him at His second coming. And then look at Acts chapter 1. Okay, Jesus' ascension says two men, okay, 
stood by them in white apparel. We've already seen in Revelation where the linen white garments of the saints is the righteousness of the saints. Okay? Two men in white apparel bear testimony or witness of His ascension. And so in each of these major events, the transfiguration, the resurrection, and the ascension, there are two witnesses. At the transfiguration, those are identified as Moses and Elijah. I believe that in the other instances, it's these same men. But obviously, they weren't recognized as that because no one knew what they looked like. We don't know what they look like. We have paintings and we have uh, movies with these men and things, men that play these characters. We don't know what they look like. But two men bore witness in these three significant events. And I believe each time it was Moses and Elijah. A lot of people look and say, well, what about Enoch? Enoch was a man of God that lived before the flood and his testimony was one that he pleased God and he prophesied about the coming of Christ in the last days. He said that when Christ comes, he's going to show everybody that spoke foolish things about him that they were wrong. Going to, he's going to convince everyone of every foolish, stupid, hard saying they've ever said. There were some stupid things said about Christ last night by people walking by the preachers. One day Christ will come with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment and will show these people that they truly were fools and that their words were foolishness and false. Enoch is a type of the raptured saint. He was raptured out secretly, just taken. One day he was, one minute he was not. Before the judgment of the flood. Noah is a type of Israel. He was preserved through the flood. And that's what will happen in the last days. The church is raptured out before the tribulation. Israel is preserved through the tribulation. But usually the line of argument where these two witnesses are concerned goes a little something like this. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. Well, the only two people in the New Testament that didn't die were Moses, I mean Elijah and Enoch. Therefore, the second witness has to be Enoch. It cannot be Moses because somebody has to die once. That's the line of argument. To me... Um, it's a little ridiculous because, yes, Hebrews 9.27 is a law of existence. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. But God can suspend His laws, just like He does with any law of nature when there is a miracle, for His own purposes. There is no scriptural basis whatsoever for claiming that Moses can't die a second time. Lazarus died twice. He died, Jesus rose him from the dead, and He obviously died again. The church living, the saints that are living when Christ comes back in the air at the rapture won't die anytime. They won't die. No death. So obviously in that event, God suspends the law of existence there in Hebrews 9. And then in Revelation 20, it says that the dead are raised to be judged and then die a second death. And so the dead in hell die twice. So there's no basis for claiming that because Moses already died once, he can't be this other witness, and it has to be Enoch. 
That's just kind of a reactionary thing that cherry-picks Scriptures and doesn't look at the whole testimony of Scripture. I believe these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Now, will the people here on earth know it's them? I don't know how they will. They, we don't know what Moses and Elijah look like. But they will come and they will carry out a powerful preaching ministry. And they will be given power to do signs just like was done in the days of the Exodus and in the days of Elijah. And this will cause the people of Israel to begin to wake up and realize that all the things the rabbis have said, most of those things that have turned away from Yeshua, turned away from Jesus as Messiah, was wrong. And these men will bear testimony of Yeshua, these men that they claim to follow in their Talmuds, and I believe it will be key to waking up the nation. But will they know it's them? The Jews are always seeking after a sign. That's just what they do. They're always looking for a sign. And these men will perform signs, and they will begin to wake up and understand who they are, I believe, and a religious Israel will begin making the transition to a messianic Israel. So I believe this is Moses and Elijah in fulfillment of prophecy. Come back for some special purpose that God has ordained going all the way back to when Moses was buried by God there in Mount Nebo. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. It talks about their martyrdom. Verses 5 and 6 is their ministry. Their ministry is accompanied by powerful preaching and signs. The ability to defend themselves. But then, the ministry is finished. They cease defending themselves and they are martyred. In verse 7 it says, When they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelled upon the earth. This is their martyrdom. Very, right there at the beginning, it says, when these shall have finished their testimony. Those are interesting words there. A servant of the Lord, my friends, doesn't die. He either finishes his testimony... Or God removes His testimony. There's two ways for a believer to exit this world. He finishes his testimony. He completes the specific job and purpose God has for him. Or God puts out His testimony but as a form of chastisement because He brings reproach on the name of Christ. In this case, these men have come, they've done their job, and they've finished their testimony. Then and only then is the beast given power to kill them when they have finished their testimony. We read about the church at Ephesus that had lost its first love in Revelation 2 and God warned them that unless they repented, He would remove their candlestick. God wasn't telling them that I'm going to take away your salvation and throw you in hell. He was saying, I'll remove your testimony. 
It's the very thing Paul warned about in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's look at that for a moment. 1 Corinthians 11. This is in the context of the Lord's Supper where the Corinthian believers were making a mockery out of something that was supposed to be very serious. A serious time of fellowship and remembrance upon the Lord's death. And there were all kinds of things going on. And Paul warned them and, and, and told them that some of the problems they were having, some of the sicknesses and even some of the death in the church was because of their foolishness. And then in verse 31, he says, If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, what kind of judgment he's talking about? The sickness in the church? Some of them had, been, had died in the church. When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. Why? That we should not be condemned with the world. So this judgment was a removal of testimony. These believers that were sick and died didn't die and go to hell. This isn't eternal damnation. These are believers secure in Christ. But though we be secure in Christ, if we bring reproach on Him and refuse to burn brightly and become such that even our lives is a stumbling block, to others with regard to the gospel, God will remove our testimony. And that's what happened here in Corinth. Why? So that those who were removed wouldn't be condemned with the world. Condemned with the world means hell. But sometimes God removes your testimony. And even that is a, an act of mercy. So there's two ways for believers to go. Finish your testimony, like these two street preachers. Or have your testimony removed like these believers in the Corinthian church, or like, was, like the church of Ephesus was warned. We need to see ourselves in these last days as lampstands. We're lampstands. Just like the imagery of the church is there in Revelation 2 and 3. This church is a lampstand. We exist not to build a big building. We don't exist to have a huge program and big salaries and uh, humanitarian efforts and all that stuff. We exist to burn as a light. To burn as a light in a dark world. And when that light flickers and doesn't burn because we become lax and we become lazy and we become distracted by the world, God can remove our testimony. He can remove the testimony of a church by shutting it down. There's a lot of churches that need to be shut down nowadays. Be better off not to have one than to have what is there. Or God can remove your testimony personally and take you on home. So there's two ways. These men don't die. You know, they die physically. Obviously, they're killed. But in a greater sense, they finish their testimony. And that ought to be what we covet. That we would finish our testimony. Not that we would have it removed uh, and be ashamed. Okay? These men are killed only when they have finished their testimony. A man of God, in the will of God, holding fast the Word of God is invincible until his testimony on earth is finished. No one could kill these men until they had completed what God had sent them to do. Only when they finished their testimony. Friends, we need not fear. You know, I had the great privilege of preaching to Brother James's church the other day during their Friday night service. We came in here in this very room Friday morning and use Skype and that, that 
technology to preach to them and to encourage them. And I encourage them that their enemies there in Bangladesh have no power unless God gives it to them. And they're invulnerable until they finish their testimony. If they're in the will of God, if they're holding fast the Word of God and preaching the Gospel, then they are invincible until their testimony is finished. And when your testimony is finished, why would you want to hang around? If you've completed what God sent you to do, why wouldn't you want to go be with Him? Those that hang and cling to this world and claim to be believers, I question whether they truly know Christ. Those that have been born again understand this is not our home. We're just pilgrims. None of us wants to die a painful death. None of us want to be tortured. But look at the testimonies down through the ages of the faithful martyrs and the grace that God gave in those moments. We can trust Him with those things. A man of God and the will of God holding fast the Word of God is invincible until his testimony on earth is finished. And an example of that is right here in Revelation chapter 11. When the time is right, when the job is done, these men let down their guard and they don't defend themselves anymore. They stop defending themselves. Like right there in verse 5. When, t- when the time is right. It's very similar to Jesus. Okay? Jesus was crucified because He let His guard down and chose not to defend Himself. There were many other times in His ministry when the people tried to kill Him. And he didn't, they didn't have the power to do it. In Luke chapter 4, He made the people in Nazareth so mad. You know, He told them, look, in the days of, 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 of Elijah, there were many people, uh, in, many widows in Israel, but God didn't send him to an, a, a widow in Israel. God sent him to uh, someone uh, in, in Tyre and Sidon. And they got mad about that. There were many lepers in Israel uh, in the days of Elisha, but God sent him to Naaman the Syrian. And his point was that you, 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 you Jews don't even recognize your Messiah. And they got angry about that. And it says that they led him to the, the brow of the hill. This is a place called Mount Precipice. It's just right outside of Nazareth. And it's a pretty big prominence. I mean, it's, there are cliffs and, and, and rock faces. I mean, it would have been a terrible place to be cast over and tumbled down the hillside. But it says that Jesus just passed through the midst of them. They were trying to throw him off the cliff. And in this big crowd or this big mob, he just passed through the midst of them and says he went on his way. So Jesus wasn't done with His ministry. They weren't able to cast Him off that cliff. Okay? If your ministry's not done, be bold. You're invincible. When it is finished, be at peace. These men were at peace. They let their guard down and they ceased to defend themselves when the time was right. And what happens? The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit This is the beast out of the earth. We're going to read about this in Revelation chapter 13. This is the Antichrist. We're actually introduced to him in great more detail. I mean, we're actually introduced to him here a little bit before we get a picture or a caricature in great detail. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will be able to make war against them and overcome them, and he kills them. Antichrist kills these men. I believe it's very public. It's a public execution. 
Okay? This beast, this Antichrist, is out of the bottomless pit. If you turn to chapter 9, verse 11, we see that the demons that come out of the bottomless pit have a king over them. His name is Apollyon, or Abaddon the Destroyer. We talked about that when we discussed the fifth trumpet. This is none other than Satan himself. Antichrist is the devil incarnate. Just like Jesus is God incarnate, Satan con- uh, uh, counterfeits everything. There's a satanic trinity. Satan, who's a mockery of God the Father, he wants to be God. Antichrist, which is a mockery of Jesus, Satan manifest in the flesh, mocking God manifest in the flesh. And later we'll see the false prophet. False prophet is a mockery of the Holy Spirit who goes out and gets the world to worship the Antichrist. A mockery of what the Holy Spirit does. He goes out and bears testimony of Christ and points people to Jesus Christ. There is a satanic trinity in which Satan attempts to mock the things of God and usurp his authority. This Antichrist is out of the bottomless pity, straight out of hell. A lot of the politicians today that we think are so great and the people fall for, they're straight out of hell too. And people are deceived into thinking that they are the answer to the problems in this country. I'm glad that joke of a Republican in California stepped down. What a joke from, the, from, from, from ascending to the speakership position. What a joke. Get out of here. Don't just step down, resign, and get out of Congress and never come back. Because you and your policies that you portray as conservatism are straight from hell. Because they deny the God of our fathers. They turned a blind eye to abortion and the sin of this country. So just like Antichrist is straight out of hell, there's a type, types of him all around today. Politicians, the policies of which are straight out of hell. Um, We've talked about this before. I'm not going to go into detail. I believe Antichrist is somehow linked to Judas Iscariot, just like the two witnesses are linked to Moses and Elijah. Okay? The fact that he comes out of the bottomless pit in Acts chapter 1, it tells us Judas died to go to his own place. So just like God had a plan and a purpose for Moses' body, perhaps Satan has a purpose for Judas' body and is allowed to do this or to reserve this under God's governance. Uh, Jesus refers to Antichrist, or or Paul refers to Antichrist as the son of perdition. Um, Jesus refers to Judas as the son of perdition. And like Judas, who is a betrayer, Antichrist is the ultimate betrayer. He betrays these preachers. He betrays the nation of Israel. But unlike Judas, he does so without remorse. Judas had remorse, not repentance. You know, you can have tears like Esau. You can cry, but that's not repentance. You know, uh, Esau sought repentance with tears, but he never found it. Judas was remorseful, but he never found repentance. Antichrist isn't even remorseful. Doesn't even care. A giant up yours to Israel, and to these men of God that are preaching God's Word, and to Christ Himself. But in the end, He's broken without hand. We have beast. Beast is an appropriate term for the political leader of the last days. We have beast 
in our government today. That's what they are. They're beasts. Hillary Clinton is a beast of a woman. Just a beast. Ugly too. When you're evil and wicked like that at heart, it comes out and it shows on your face. Physically. A beast of a woman. I make no apology for that. When a woman is humble and she loves the Lord and she loves her family, that shows physically. It gives her a glow, a beauty. Those things are beautiful. Femininity in a woman is beautiful. God made it that way. But today, America wants women to be butch and men to be femi. It's all backwards. It's all messed up. That's what happens in a world when men rebel against God. We're rebelling even against the created order today. But beast is an appropriate description here of Antichrist. And most of these politicians that we think are going to change things are the spirit of Antichrist and their beast as well. Don't think an election is going to change anything next year. The problem's not the party in control. The problem is the heart of the American people. It says in verse 8 that their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Here we have obvious symbolism. It's easy to interpret this symbol here. This city is Sodom and Egypt. Spiritually, it's just like Sodom and Egypt. Sodom was characterized by the homosexual perversion that ran rampant in its streets. Not long ago, they had a huge gay pride parade even in Israel. Israel today is very secular. Yes, there's religious elements. But Tel Aviv is a secular city and homosexuality is glorified. Gay marriage is legal in Israel. Abortion happens in Israel. So spiritually, Israel is Sodom. Egypt. Egypt, idolatrous. Rebellious against God. Distracted by the wealth and the things of this world. Spiritually, Jerusalem is Sodom and Egypt even today. But we know this is talking about Jerusalem. Here you have a biblical symbol and it's easy to interpret because the Bible interprets it for us. What is this great city where their bodies will lie in the streets? It's the city where our Lord was crucified. We know it was Jerusalem. Obviously, the center of this street preaching ministry is in Jerusalem. It's probably there at the, the, the temple that's been rebuilt that Antichrist will use as his seat So there's obvious symbolism here. Yes, we can interpret symbols in the Bible, but we need to be careful and let the Bible interpret it and not try to take something that's obviously literal and make it symbolic. Or take something that's obviously symbolic and make it literal. This is a symbol. These men aren't going to be preaching in Egypt in downtown Cairo. They're going to be in Jerusalem. How do we know it's a symbol? It's described that way clearly in the text. Be careful with symbols in the Bible. If it's symbolic, let the Bible interpret it. If it's literal, don't make it symbolic. If it's symbolic, don't make it literal. Verses 9 and 10, what do we see? We see the attitude of the peoples of this earth when these street preachers are killed. We see their attitude. They have celebrations. They make merry. They give gifts to one another like Christmas when these men are killed. Make no mistake, this same attitude 
This same hatred for the Bible preacher exists today. The same hatred spews from the mouths, from the eyes, from the body language of people that pass by and hear a man preaching the gospel on the streets, even in America. I saw this hatred last night. You can see it in their faces when they walk by and wag their heads. And the day's going to come when this attitude will manifest itself when two street preachers are murdered and people will rejoice. Mark my words, there are people out here, some that call themselves Christians, lots of Chi Alphas on these college campuses that would love to see done to a preacher on their campus what's done to these men. And they would rejoice. There are people in the church that would love to see done to faithful believers that take a stand for righteousness what's done to these street preachers. And they would rejoice. And yet they call themselves Christians. That same attitude is not to be surprising because it exists even today. To those that hate God, the good news is not good news. It's torment. What do they say here? They rejoice because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. To those that hate God, the good news of the gospel is torment. And that's even the case today. We can stand on a street corner or we can stand on the campus and we can preach the cross. The gospel. I spoke last night about gospel means good news. The good news is that you can escape your sin. There is deliverance from your sinful pagan life. That's good news. We can have a sign that says the word love. Just one word, love. And they still level the same three accusations. I don't care where you're preaching. I don't care to whom you're preaching to or what campus you're visiting on, an American, on American soil. These people always have the same three accusations. doesn't matter what you say. You could stand out there and just say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they'll say the same thing. He's telling us we're all going to hell. God, he's saying God hates fags. They're yelling at us. That's what they always say. In fact, there was an article printed in the campus newspaper at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. It was entitled, Preachers from the Lower 48 Visit Campus and Cause a Stir. Okay. If you're preaching the gospel, you ought to cause a stir. If you don't cause a stir, I don't think you're preaching the gospel. But it was, it, was, it was amazing the bias. I mean, they interviewed students. Never interviewed any of the students that were actually encouraged, the believers. Okay? And then there was a picture there. And that picture showed Brother Sean and Brother Ken with a hymn book. They were singing hymns. They were singing hymns. And the captions read, Preachers yell Bible verses at students as they walk by. So these men were singing hymns about the love of God and yet they were yelling according to the campus newspaper. So they're always going to accuse us of telling everybody they're going to hell. You, you don't even have to mention homosexuality and they're going to say you're screaming that God hates fags. And you can talk in a soft voice and barely be heard and they're going to accuse you of yelling because they don't understand the difference between speaking to be heard and yelling. These accusations came up last night. When people hate God, the good news is not good news. It's yelling. It's telling people they're going to hell. It's God hates fags. That's what they hear. Because they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. 
And they have rejected God. That's why the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that perish. But to us that are saved, it's the power of God. It's always the power of God. If you want to know whether or not you're dealing with a genuine believer, note how they react to the preaching of the cross. Do they think it's foolish and not effective? Do they think, well, I'm already a Christian. Give one of them tracts to somebody who needs it. Do they try to debate with you and silence the preaching of the gospel? Well, according to the Bible, that's the reaction of those that are perishing. Those that are saved see it as a power of God and are encouraged in some way. So if somebody claims to be a Christian and you're out preaching the gospel, the cross, and they show no evidence of being encouraged, only evidence of trying to put a stumbling block in your path, then according to the Bible, they are perishing and they are not saved. Period. Jesus said, by your fruits, their fruits, you shall know them. If these men were in Jerusalem preach, or if they're in Jerusalem preaching here, uh, doing their ministry, how is it that the entire world is able to rejoice? How is it that the entire world is able to see their death and to exchange gifts and talk about how these men tormented them with their ministry? How could they torment the whole world with the good news if they're preaching in Jerusalem? Well, obviously in John's day that would have been hard to figure out, but today it's easy to figure out. Obviously, this has to happen in a time when there's television and satellite feeds. And these guys will be on the evening news every night. And people around the world will hate them. Will hate them. So John reveals something that could only happen in this modern day of technology. Obviously, TV broadcasts and satellite feeds and Facebook and Internet and all of this stuff uh, will be a part of the good news going out into the whole world and people hating it, tormented by it. I mean, hey, we went to Fairbanks and all of a sudden they've got an article about us on a campus newspaper. They did put the gospel in there, though. I was quoted as saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's by His death, burial, and resurrection that we can be made right with God. They quoted me on that. So the gospel, regardless of the bias within that article, the gospel was there. And I praised God for it. I'm just going to wait, go on a little bit while Matthew is returning uh, with launch. Um, they're killed, and their death and their assassination is a mockery. What happens as their body, you know, when you allow somebody's body to lay open in the streets, that's the ultimate insult to someone. That's what they did with Mussolini and his wife in Italy after they killed him. They just hung him up in the streets. It's kind of amazing how a very powerful dictator who was very much a type of Antichrist one moment was on top of the world and then with all the power in the world there in Italy over his people and the next moment he's hanging naked, his dead body's hanging naked in the streets. You know, you can have all this earthly power, you can have all this dictatorial rule and authority and in a moment it's gone. Ask the last communist leader of Romania, a tyrant whose wife hated Christians and persecuted Christians. One moment he's in control, preaching and delivering a speech to the people there in Bucharest, and then the next moment his government is overthrown, and in a matter of a couple of weeks, him and his wife are drugged before court, a tribunal, and they're sentenced to death. They're taken out behind the building and shot dead. And the woman is, is, is protesting and screaming and arguing. This woman that hated Christians in terrible fear, and there's nothing she could do to stop it. 
The Romanian Revolution took place in the 1980s. It's a very interesting demonstration of how a very polit powerful political figure can fall just like that. You can actually see this trial and this execution on YouTube if you want to watch it. It's there. A hater of Christians brought to her in and there was no one could help her. Shot dead. Same will be the case with Antichrist. He's powerful. He deceives the world. He kills these street preachers. And then one moment he's on top, the next moment Christ comes back and he's broken without hand. So don't be too discouraged about these wicked men in power. Power's fleeting. It can end tomorrow. But what the world mocks, the execution of these men and laying their bodies in the street, the world mocks that, but it's precious to God. Let me just read a passage here. Psalm chapter 116. Or the 116th Psalm. What does it say here? This should be of great comfort. Verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. The world can behead you like ISIS has done to Christians in Syria. The mobs can beat you and set you on fire like what has happened to believers in places like Bangladesh or Pakistan. The world can leave your body lying in the streets to rot and mock you and remove all of your dignity whatever dignity you have, and make a complete mockery. But precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. You know, ISIS can run rampant over Syria and the Levant, and they can kill Christians. And these Christians who refuse to convert to Islam and watch ISIS kill their family members and rape their women and finally behead them, we look at that as how terrible, how tragic. You know, these people have lost their dignity. What a horrible thing to happen. But precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And the death of these two preachers is precious in the eyes of God. And despite all the mockery, their bodies are only allowed to lay there for three and a half days. Jesus' body was only in the grave three days. There's a lot about these two ministries that mirror each other here. But after three days, it says in verse 11 the life from God entered into their bodies and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell upon them which saw them. So in verses 11 and 12, and then it says, they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither! And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. So we have their resurrection. These men are allowed to preach when they finish their testimony. They're martyred. But shortly thereafter, they're raised up from the dead in the presence of the world and they're translated. Resurrected and translated. It's what happens to all believers. When the rapture comes, the dead in Christ will rise first, resurrected, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air. Resurrection, translation. What happens to these men has already happened to the church. It's a little bit different. What happens with the church as um, demonstrated with John in the first verse of chapter 4 is a secret thing. In the twinkling of an eye. Nobody knows where these people went. With these two men, it's very public. They watch it. Just like Elisha saw Elijah going back to heaven. This is the end of all believers. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Because the end for the believer is not death. It's resurrection and translation. 
And a giant here with this resurrection is a giant LOL. It's God's giant LOL. Laugh out loud. You know, these men, these people around the world are mocking the preachers. They laugh and rejoice at their death. But God gets the last laugh. God gets the, the LOL. And the LOL comes when they stand on their feet and return to heaven. And then all that rejoicing, all that merriment is no longer merriment. It's fear. You know, people talk a big talk today. The atheist, the sodomite, the politician, they talk a big talk. But in an instant, that big talk turns to fear when they're confronted with their mortality. And that's what happens with the world here. Talking a big talk, having a big party, partying it up, and then confronted with their mortality and the truth that these men were from God and they spoke for God, and then fear. The rejoicing turns to fear. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, the great messianic psalm that prophesies the rule and reign of Christ in His millennium. Talks about how the world wants to overthrow God and His plan and purpose for Messiah. But it says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. God laughs at man's attempt to overthrow His rule and reign in the universe. God laughs at the attempts of men to stop Jesus Christ from being the king of this world and for ruling forever from the throne of David. God laughs. And God laughs at this attempt of Antichrist in the world to silence or to stop His judgment. And how does He laugh? He puts life back in these men's bodies and they stand on their feet. Verse 11, it says that the Spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood on their feet. That's a picture of the dead in Christ at the rapture. The Spirit of God, or the life of God, enters into those dead bodies and they get up out of the graves. Pride, boasting, merriment, confidence quickly turns to fear for those beholding. These men are resurrected and then translated in the presence of their enemies for all the world to see. Very much like Jesus Christ and His ascension. Jesus Christ didn't secretly ascend back to heaven. It was beheld by eyewitnesses. There's no question that it took place. Elisha saw Elijah go up into heaven with a whirlwind and chariots of fire. The world who hated the preacher, these preachers will see them ascend into heaven. Resurrected and then publicly translated. In Revelation 4.1, as I mentioned, John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day after he's written the letters to the seven churches and then he sees a door in heaven. The door is open and, and, and a voice says, come up here. And then immediately he's in the throne room of God and he sees the church there when those elders say, they, you have redeemed us out of every tribe, kindred, and nation. So John is raptured in Revelation at the end of the letters to the seven churches, at the precise place that the church is raptured. It's a picture of the rapture of the saints. But it's a secret rapture. It's immediate, and it's in the twinkling of an eye. Very similar to Jesus' resurrection. Nobody saw Him raised from the dead. He just wasn't there. Very similar to Enoch. He walked with God, and then He was not. So the rapture of the saints is a secret thing that happens in the twinkling of an eye. And men will debate and argue about what's going on. Where'd these people go? They're not going to turn to Christ and all of a sudden believe the Bible. They'll talk about aliens and all kinds of crazy things. They'll talk about evolution, got rid of this, 
scourge of our society. But what happens here with these two witnesses is not secret. It's public. It's beheld by all. Very much like Elijah, very much like Jesus' ascension, as I've already said. It's a public translation, and it's not immediate. It's drawn out. It's drawn out. They ascend into heaven, much like a balloon slowly climbs up into the clouds. And there's no question that what they preached was of God. There's no question that what they prophesied will come true. Just like there's no question that what Jesus said about Himself is true. Why? Because He rose from the dead and was beheld by eyewitnesses. That's the proof that everything He said was true. The proof that everything these preachers said was true is when they raised from the dead and ascended into heaven in public view. And then all the boasting turns to fear. It says uh, their enemies beheld them and great fear fell upon those which saw them. So, when you preach the gospel and you're surrounded by the atheists who talk a big talk and you feel discouraged or you don't feel like you can give them an answer to make them see the truth, understand that all the pride, all the boasting will turn to fear the moment they're faced with a terminal disease, the moment they're faced with death, all of that bold talk turns into fear. We see this with Hindus. All this bold talk about their gods and goddesses and all of these things that they put so much trust in. But when death suddenly comes into the home, you'll see a weeping at a funeral, a Hindu funeral that you don't see in the, in the funeral of a Bible-believing saint. Because they know they have no hope. All of a sudden, all the rituals, all the superstitions mean nothing. It's the same thing with Islam. It's the same thing with Buddhism. It's the same thing with Catholicism. So we've, chapter 10 and 11 has been all about testimony. Testimony of God during a time of darkness and judgment upon the earth. We had the testimony of the mighty angel. We had the testimony of John, his obedience and his role in measuring the temple. We had the testimony of these two special witnesses. And here at the end of the chapter, the last two verses, we have the testimony of the great earthquake. So the testimony's not finished. It says at the same hour, I'm just going to preach till Matthew shows up. There's no reason not to. Maybe I can get done. And the same hour, what hour? The hour that these saints or these preachers are ascended into heaven. The same hour, this is accompanied by a great earthquake. Verse 13, And the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain men of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Yet more testimony. A great earthquake. 7,000 killed. The earthquake in Nepal back in April killed 9,000. 23,000 were injured with the earthquake and some of the powerful aftershocks that followed. So very much like the Nepal earthquake, there will be a great earthquake in Jerusalem. And it says a tenth of the city will fall. What part of the city is it? Could it be the old city that still stands today? Will those old city walls that have endured the centuries just come crashing down? Will the old city fall? I don't know, but a tenth of Jerusalem will crumble and fall in this great earthquake and 7,000 will be killed. The epicenter obviously is Jerusalem. 
And then it says the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. I believe this word remnant here in this context is talking about Jews. The epicenter is in Jerusalem. 7,000 are killed there in Jerusalem. And the remnant of the Jews that survive give glory to God. So when this happens, the transition is being made from a spiritual Israel to a messianic Israel. You know, God takes a secular nation and it becomes spiritual after the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39. But spiritual is not yet messianic. They may be religious again. They may be praying and calling out the God of heaven, but they don't see Jesus as Messiah. After the preaching testimony of these men, the remnant are affrighted and give glory to the God of heaven. They're moving from spiritual to messianic. And the day will come in a single day, those living in Israel at that day, the whole nation, will confess that Jesus is their Messiah and cry out to Him to deliver them. And at that point, He will return. He will return and make war against Antichrist and get the victory. So we're in this transition. The remnant that survives in Jerusalem gives glory to God. They know that God is involved. And there must be truth to what was being preached concerning Messiah. So the nation is going through those birth pangs, making that transition from spiritual to messianic. And look who they give glory to, the God of heaven. My friends, the God of heaven is the God of Israel. It's not the God of Pakistan. He's not the God of the Muslim nations. He's not the God of the Catholics. The God of heaven is the God of Israel. It's the God of Israel. Without Israel and its place in history, without Israel in terms of its giving us Messiah, there would be no salvation. There would be no knowledge of God. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem, love the Jewish people, and tell them the Gospel. Because the day is coming when they will awake. And just as we see Jesus as our Messiah, they will see Him as theirs. The God of heaven is the God of Israel. That's why He can't be the God of the Quran. Jehovah can't be Allah. Allah hates Jews and Christians. Of course, in the very beginning of the Quran, they're okay. They're, they're described in glowing terms, but then Muhammad must have smoked too much uh, weed for the second or subsequent visions because then all of a sudden they're enemies of God. The God of the Quran is not the God of the Bible. He's not the Creator God. He's the devil. And his prophet is a type of the false prophet. The God of heaven is the God of Israel. So don't tell me you hate Jews and you love God. You don't. You don't. In terms of judgment, we have the testimony of a great earthquake. And then we have a statement on chronology there in verse 14. This tells us when this happens during the tribulation. The second woe is past, and the third woe comes quickly. Where are we at in the chronology? We're at the end of the ministry of the two witnesses. This coincides with the earthquake, which the Bible says is the end of the second woe. What was the first woe? It was the fifth trumpet judgment in chapter 9. The infernal torment of those demons released out of the bottomless pit that are allowed to torment men for five months. What is the second woe? It starts with the sixth trumpet, the infernal destruction of those fallen angels that wreak havoc across the world by which a third of men are killed. 
And the end of that sixth trumpet is the earthquake. So we know that the end of this ministry coincides with these events. That's where we are in the chronology. We're in the second half of the tribulation. Okay? The three and a half years that the preachers preach overlaps the two three and a half year periods of the tribulation. It overlaps the first half of the week and the second half of the week. But at the end of this preaching ministry, we have the end of the sixth trumpet. The great earthquake is the second woe. What is the third woe? Well, we'll find that out here at the end of chapter 11. The third woe is the seventh trumpet judgment. What makes it more distinct than the others? The seventh trumpet judgment is the seven vials of God's wrath. The trumpet is blown and then what follows are the seven vials of the wrath of God. That's the third woe. In the, the end of chapter 15, or chapter 11, we'll get into when I'm with you next time. We have a scene in heaven. And then at the end of chapter 11, we have to jump over to chapter 15, where in the first seven verses, we have the same scene in heaven. And then beginning with verse 8 in chapter 15, we get the chronology of the seven vials, or the third woe. Chapter 12 through 14 is another parenthesis. So we're at the end of one parenthesis concerning testimony. We'll have some verses here at the end of chapter 11 that progress the chronology, and then we'll get into another parenthesis, which is basically describing the major characters of the tribulation period, the seven great personages. We'll get into a detailed look at Antichrist, the false prophet, the role of the nation of Israel, Messiah, we'll see some information about Michael the archangel and others. Okay, So the narrative is advancing, but God is giving us a glimpse of things that are happening behind the scenes in days of judgment. Verse 14, the second woe is past, and behold, the third cometh quickly. When we see that phrase, cometh quickly, that means without delay. Friends, when these things begin... They will happen quickly. They won't be drawn out over years and years and years and years. We think, why is God's, God's judgment so slow in coming? Why do the cogs of God's justice turn so slowly? Friend, when it comes, it'll happen quickly. I was preaching last night, today's not a day of judgment. That judgment's coming, today's a day of salvation because God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There in 2 Peter. But the very next verse says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the earth will melt with fervent heat. When it comes, it happens quickly. There's no more delay. So let's go out and preach the gospel while we have time. Let's go out and preach the gospel. America may seem powerful and invulnerable, but they thought so in the Soviet Union back in 1991. And then one day the world woke up in that great Soviet bear crumbled and dissolved into the nations it is today. Don't think we couldn't wake up tomorrow and see this United States dissolve. Before you, when they say peace, 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 suddenly destruction cometh upon them. So let's live humbly. Let's let our lights burn bright. Let's model the ministry of these future preachers that are yet to come and preach the truth. And not apologize. And when it comes time to finish our testimony, let's do it with a smile. 
Let's look death and our enemies in the face and smile because we know that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints and He will avenge the blood.